0: Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge.
1: And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Shelly, and joined by my lovely co-host, Serge Boudreaux. Serge. I love being called
0: lovely because I think it fits me perfectly. (laughs) Shelly, I'm very excited about this episode because I am welcoming an old employee and also an old boss, believe it or not. I am excited to welcome Laura Daryl, the author of The Great Resonation, How Coaching and Appreciative Leadership Can Help You Win the War for Talent. Definitely very topical right now. Laura, very excited to have you on. Welcome.
2: Oh, Thank you so much, guys. It's my pleasure to be joining you both today. Super exciting to talk about all things culture and retention.
0: I work with Laura at Workopolis. I think we worked together three or four years and Laura was a kick-ass Workopolis account executive. And then she hired me on at Kelly Services. So Laura, for the audience that doesn't know who you are, please give us a little bit of a background.
2: Oh my gosh. Okay. So Spent close to six years between Workopolis and Kelly Services, working with Surge on all things recruitment and organizational health, talent attraction. That was a big part of my career. And then outside of those two roles, I really spent the bulk of my career working for Apple, Starbucks, Boston Pizza, and AW restaurants. So a lot of time in restaurants and retail. My biggest passion from a working perspective has always been. Uh, leadership. That is my jam. I love talking about how leadership promotes organizational health, which drives strong culture and the ability to really attract and keep your talent. I did a master's degree in leadership at Royal Roads University on Vancouver Island. And at the end of October last year, I retired. And since then, I wrote my first book. We've been doing some traveling, my husband and I, and really just, yeah, taking it a bit easy. Obviously, I was in the restaurant industry. I was vice president with Boston Pizza during the time of COVID. So I, in a sense, am a product of the great resignation of myself. So yeah, really, really interesting times. That's for sure.
0: It is. And it's been really interesting just to watch your journey on Facebook, because literally every time I open Facebook, you're in a different country (laughs) or a different part of the world. (laughs) And obviously retiring at a for the audience that doesn't see the camera at a very young age, you've had a really good career. You've had a lot of success. You decided to retire, move to Mexico from Calgary, and then you're traveling the world. What made you want to write a book?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, I'm pretty young. I'm like approaching fifty. So to be fair, I'm, I'm just not like I'm in my twenties. The one thing that I missed from the working world is the leadership piece and the impact that you can have. On people's lives, when you embrace those great leadership practices, as cliche as it sounds, you really can make a huge difference in people's lives. And I missed that. And I wanted to find a way to expand that scope. And how do you take that message of great leadership and healthy organizations and really strong culture? How can you get that message out to as many people as possible? And so that's when I got the first idea to write a book and really just the timing of the great resignation kind of fit with a lifelong journey of leadership that's inside that book and all things about culture and team development and everything a leader would need to know a department and organization to really treat their people well so that they don't want to leave you.
1: I'm fascinated actually with your story because being in the restaurant industry when COVID hit, in an executive role. I got to hear the story, Laura, for you to say you're a product of the great resignation. I really want to get underneath that. I mean, 50's young. 50 is our power alley in terms of work and credibility and professionalism. When you hit 50, that's when things really come together. You're jamming then. What is your main reason for being part of the great resignation? What do you believe that those main reasons are?
2: Sure. It's a great question. So My story is probably not unlike any other executive. They may not have retired as a result, but my gosh, the restaurant industry was just heartbreaking on so many levels. What happened to the restaurant industry and I think the retail industry, the hotel industry, anything travel related, all suffered kind of the same fate. Uh, during those two years of COVID, being with a franchised organization at the time, oh my gosh, the pain was twofold. So, number one, you're seeing these franchisees with a brand like Boston Pizza that have just invested their whole lives and their kids' lives, and just seeing what happened, the stress that they were under, being open for dine in and then only open for takeout and delivery, and you're laying off your staff and then you're trying to hire your staff back. You're watching just the financial ruin that came to the whole industry. That was really heartbreaking. And then, of course, you have the organization on the other side. So I led three departments. I had operations. I had training. I had systems. I had a huge group of folks working in those three departments. And Yeah, it was a tough time going through layoffs and seeing a really lean team still trying to support 400 restaurants. It was really hard. And I think when I came through at the other side, my husband retired probably three months into COVID. The other thing that's really interesting is that people kind of have lived these lives on the road, right? Like I was a road warrior, so was my husband. We were traveling all the time for work and then the world stopped and we were both like, oh, I actually really like you. I really want to spend this time with you. Yeah, I think it went one way or the other, right? <laughs> right? Totally. Fair. You know, I saw the team through the other side and I resigned from executive position with the intent of moving to Mexico and just taking some time with Jim and seeing what happened from there. And it was like a long farewell, I call it. It took about seven months to, to wrap everything up. But that's really how... Uh, My story came to be is that industry and others like it. It was a battlefield out there. It was really tough. What you just shared
1: strikes fear in the heart of every organization. You've got such institutional knowledge, you're well-educated, and you decide to retire. Your story is one of the factors in the Great Resignation. What else would you point to that organizations need to have their radar up for? Some of the reasons
2: why people will leave. COVID was such a disruptive time for everybody. It changed their work patterns and all of a sudden they're working from home and their jobs changed and the world was changing around them. And what we know about human nature, when that happens, it flips your whole perspective and the way you look at a whole bunch of things. And so that happened for a lot of people. And then you had all of these industries in disruption, obviously restaurants, hospitality, tourism, travel, airlines, they laid off a ton of people both on the front lines but i think what people didn't factor in is that also a lot of folks that worked in those head offices doing the hr the marketing the accounting all those teams got really lean through layoffs and then all of a sudden as the world started to come back to life everybody needed to do all of this hiring all at the same time and that put extreme pressure on all of the recruitment pools talent pools You saw all these headlines start to crop up. Oh my gosh, we can't find people. We're in this kind of hiring frenzy. And anytime you see that in the media, that causes everybody else to think, well, I don't love the culture that I work in. I don't have a great relationship with my manager. I don't feel appreciated. I feel like I am not being developed. There's no opportunity for me here. So anybody that was feeling like that as all of these headlines were cropping up about, ah, there's nobody to hire all these wages going up, all of these perks and benefits. Well, of course, they're going to start to peek over the fence and start to see, gosh, can I get in a company that's more aligned with my values? Can I make more money? Can I have a flexible schedule? Anything that might have been missing in their current working arrangement, they started looking. And then all of a sudden, not only did you have all of these industries that are super disrupted and trying to rehire their workforce, now you've got folks leaving a whole bunch of other industries and workplaces to try and better their situation. That's really at the heart of mm-hmm. what drove and driving the great resignation.
1: So it's not just retirement, because what I heard mm-hmm. you say is what I believe in my heart of hearts is I am not going to endure one more day of my boss, who is such a jerk. I would rather
2: go fold sweaters at the bay. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, I think so. so is totally that right. at the heart of it? Really? 100%. You're absolutely right, Shelley. I mean, money's important, of course, but I call it table stakes. If you're not yeah. paying whatever yeah. the regional average is for that role in that industry, where you do business, well, of course, you're going to have a difficult time hiring people. But that's not what's at the heart of the Great Resignation. There's a really interesting study I talk about in my book that MIT did. They got into the nitty gritty of what was really driving the, the Great Resignation. It really comes down to, and you nailed it, it's a toxic workplace culture because trust is missing and trust in a whole bunch of different areas. It's I don't trust that my manager is going to represent my work to the powers that be up the hierarchy. I'm being yep. micromanaged from my hours in, hours out perspective. I feel like I'm in a dead end job. My manager doesn't want to invest in my development or coaching because yep. they maybe want to protect their. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff buried in that toxic culture. We're two years into this. The research is starting to really come forward. That's a huge part of it. And then the other piece that is maybe not getting as much light as it should be right now is the mental health crisis that is really just ripping its way through specifically the millennials and the older Gen Z. There's some really sad, scary research that came out of the Kaiser Institute in the U.S. around, you know, in this post-COVID world, the amount of people identifying as, as suffering with some kind of mental health illness, whether it's around depression, anxiety, that's scary stuff. And COVID was just a disaster for so many people. On top of that, my my boss is a bit of a jerk. There's no fun culture where I go to work every day Mm -hmm. and I need to form my own mental health. I need to go somewhere that is going to be appreciative of my efforts, that I'm going to have a boss that champions my career. Um, there's a lot of evaluation and reflection going on right now because of what's happened uh, from the mental health perspective.
0: Yeah. Let's be honest about a couple of things though. We've had shitty bosses for a long time, right? Not
2: new. <laughs> yeah. We've had
0: <laughs> shitty workplace cultures. Like A lot of that has been around as long as the workforce has existed. Yeah. But I think the labor supply has changed completely. There is a lot and then, more jobs than there are people to yeah. fill them. As an employee, I have tons of options that is driving a lot of people resigning because they know they can and they know that won't hurt them in the future as well putting that in perspective how should companies approach retaining their employees what should be the strategy around that
2: well that's such a good point serge this is a problem that albertans have dealt with For many years, the oil boom happens, there's nobody to hire. And then you bring in all of this focus on the culture and how you're going to attract and retain talent. And some places in the world and some parts of Canada, for sure, haven't maybe had to deal with this level of supply and demand issue in the workforce. It's a bit new for them. But I think there's four or five key things that you would want to do from an organizational perspective to increase your odds and retaining the top talent that you have. Um, and attracting some more top talent to your organization. The first thing I would suggest is there needs to be a bit of an understanding around the demographic shift in the workplace. You've got largely millennials and the older Gen Z making up half the workforce today. And if you're trying to manage them the way you would manage a boomer or even a Gen X to some extent... You're going to have some trouble right out of the gate because they're, they're two really different demographics. And one of the challenges is that a lot of Gen Xers are now taking the helms of executive roles in departments. They're taking over organizations. They're taking the helm from the boomers. But we learned from the boomers. They were our leadership example and specifically things around appreciative leadership, which is one of the two main styles you'd want to use when you're leading Gen Y and Gen Z. It's not their strong suit. And that's a huge part of culture for them. They want to feel recognized. They want to feel appreciated for a job well done. So that's missing. First and foremost, you have to understand that your leaders need to be using a little bit different leadership style to promote the right kind of culture for these two generations. And number two would be, for goodness sakes, you have to start investing in your leaders and your managers. I share some research in my book that's pretty alarming about the lack of training When you get promoted as a new manager in an organization, certainly in North America, this holds true, I think the status, close to 70% of them, receive no leadership training whatsoever. And that's obviously a huge problem. That's where you learn to give feedback and have coaching conversations and to give recognition and to write a good performance review, to talk about bench strength and all of these things that leaders need to do to really promote this kind of healthy Culture. You certainly need to start investing in the development, the professional development of your managers and your leaders. The third piece of advice would be if you're not investing in good onboarding and training that specifically maps out, you know, this is the organization's purpose and this is your role in contributing to that purpose. This is what you do in your seat that contributes to that organizational goal. That's absolutely critical. It should happen on day one, and it really should happen from a senior leader. They should be delivering this message to each new individual. Certainly, that's what the apples of the world, the Starbucks of the world, when you join that organization, someone very senior sits down with you and they tell you, this is your job. This is how we're going to measure success. But most importantly, this is how you contribute to the purpose of the organization. And you know, training needs to really move in a direction of, How the millennials and how the Gen Z like to receive information. These guys live on YouTube. They like to have a video library of where to go to watch the specific elements of their job. They want to know what right looks like. They want in front of them. This is what a successful you looks like so that they can take that away and not be guessing but what the right thing they need to do to be successful in their job. The last point would be, Serge, ask people. Ask your team send out a survey, put a little focus group together. How are you doing? Are you liking things here? Are you enjoying your time at the company? Do some skip levels, do some 360 performance reviews. When you thoughtfully engage the people that work for you, they'll tell you everything you want to know and then put a little action plan together and start you know, crossing some things on the list that you can enhance to make your workplace even better. What you just described is utopia. Honestly, Laura,
1: the companies you named, like the Starbucks of the world, who ensure that the message is clear. And that is why they have become the titan of coffee that they are. I truly believe that. But I want to ask you, one of the trends that became super clear through COVID is the freelance and gig economy. So here's what's interesting. And I'm going to guess what you're going to say, but I really want to hear your perspective. How do you see the gig economy and freelancers fitting into
2: this? So how should yeah, leaders we, handle that? We're just really getting started with the gig economy and freelance and people going out on their own as just starting to gain some momentum. Before I left my position with Boston Pizza, I actually spent some time with a really cool company in Vancouver that's starting to put together like the Uber of restaurant workers you can pick up ships at your server you can work at a bunch of different restaurants if you're a line cook same thing and we really had some interesting conversations about their philosophy at this company treat these gig workers that work for this agency or they work for themselves treat them just like you would a regular member of the team, include them in the pre-shift, include them in the the, the celebratory pizza and beer after the shift. And I honestly think that the best companies in the world are going to figure that out really quick. They're going to figure out that these folks that are in this gig economy or these freelance workers, they're actually going to turn into a massive recruitment pool. Because if you treat these folks with respect and dignity, just like a regular member of your team, you include them in outings and events and all that culture building stuff. Well, gosh, you could maybe win some of these folks over to say, hey, you know what, I actually really like this place. And I want to come and work here full time. It's going to shake things up for sure, because a lot of people are going to go in that direction. Certainly with bigger organizations and big companies coming through COVID, so many organizations had to do layoffs during this time scaling up and scaling down and laying people off and hiring people. It's a ton of work. It's really disruptive to culture. And you might see some positions where organizations prefer to go into a freelance. Maybe it's marketing, some of the accounting, certainly some of the administrative, the best companies are going to figure out a way to make that work for them and find a hidden pool of talent there. in a time when talent is pretty scarce.
0: I agree with that. We're very much in a skill-based economy and skills can be transferred easily from company to company and can be used when they need to be used and then moved on to the next sector. What we might not see is organizations, it's going to take them a little while for them to catch on and really buy into this because there is mentality, hey, you have to be here full time for us to build that workplace culture. But workplace culture is changing dramatically. And I think you nailed it there by involving those people in everything. Because I've seen it firsthand working with a lot of organizations that the contractors and the freelance, they're not on the Slack channels. They're not on different groups within the organization. And that definitely doesn't help them. But I do want to drive into your next topic. I guess your second edition of your next book is going to cover this. I'm just doing it for you right now. Quiet, (laughs) committing. I think quiet quitting has replaced the great resonation as the great buzzword of the day in the sure. world work. First of all, how do you perceive quiet quitting and what's your overall take on it?
2: Yeah, it's a great new hashtag. <laughs> follow it on LinkedIn. There's some really funny posts there. It, it's interesting, Serge. The word quiet quitting is really just trying to distill down a complex set of Different factors. There's a couple of things that are happening right now. The first thing was we're seeing the fallout from this mass shift to work from home. And, you know, there's kind of this five year cycle of an employee year one on the job, nothing. It's a hot mess. You're making all kinds of mistakes. Year two is not much better. You're trying to apply the learnings from year one. It's not till years three and four where you really start to feel confident. You've got a good handle on things and kind of year five you're cruising. So if you apply that kind of five-year methodology to this massive shift to work from home that people really, oh, you're going to go work from home, here's your laptop, over to you. That's the bulk of how most people got trained to work from home. Now, I think we're really suffering the fallout from that. And for those of us that worked from home for a long time, you know what it's like to walk past your dining room table and your laptop and your work is sitting out there all the time. You know how easy it is to roll out of bed in the morning and pick up your phone and answer a few emails. Next thing you're working horrendous hours. You're always accessible because it's just so easy to do that. And I think a lot of people went through a crash course on working from home and they probably went through a good chunk of burnout. That's one category of this quiet quitting. I think there is a whole cohort of people that moved to working from home that are now like, oh, shit, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not being available 24-7. I'm going to put some boundaries in place. And it was bound to happen. Nobody can work at that pace forever and ever. People are just trying to get a little bit of balance back. They're trying to learn all the lessons of how to work from home in a way that work doesn't take over your life. Yeah. The second thing is that it's just not new. It's just a new name for poor leadership, managers that don't care about their people, there's a lack of appreciation, there is a lack of coaching, a lack of career progression. And it's a softer way to talk about the great resignation. People are just done. And maybe they haven't found their job yet. But I think in the recruitment world, we used to call these the active job seekers. They've decided I'm done at my job. I don't have a new job yet. But I'm done. And now I'm going to start looking for something else. And of course, those folks are not going to be the ones putting up their hands for extra projects, extra assignments. They're not going to be the ones kind of vying for promotion. But that's not new. We've always had that. It's a little bit new with this work from home crowd that really went through a painful kind of growth two years. But for the most part, at the heart of a lot of these things is bad culture and and bad leadership.
1: Mm. You know, that is the first time I have made that connection. So thank you, Laura, because going into 2022, one of the things we always ask is what do you foresee as being disruptive and what's changing? And I remember a lot of people saying, nobody knows. This is like reading a great book, you know, the next chapter, what is going to be the repercussions? Like, I love how you explained that fallout from work from home, Mm. because you're right. Working from home, it took me at least four or five years to pace myself. And so now, like you say, a lot of people have been able to put some guardrails on here. Great insight. Thank you for that. When you look out into 2023 and beyond any sort of predictions, disruptions, Oh, that's a
2: good one. There's a couple of things that have been on my radar. I've been doing a little bit of research into for maybe a next book, we'll see. We've been talking about AI and automation for a really long time, how disruptive that's going to be. That peak is going to be a steep incline ahead of us of change. Both Deloitte and PwC put out a really interesting kind of analysis of the world of work. And there, I think, is going to a huge demand for humanness. So that skill of empathy, that skill of critical thinking, creativity, ideation, leaders that can help their teams be resilient, manage stress, be really flexible. That's the one thing that AI and automation can't do for us. They can't bring that human factor to the organization, to the decision-making progress, to the table. So there's some really interesting research coming out now, kind of future focused on, gosh, if you've got, you know, kids in high school, going into college, university, those humanness skills are going to be very highly valued. And that's only going to get more so as we eke closer to 2030. I think that's going to be a huge push. The other thing that's really interesting right now is the emergence of the ESG scoring. So that's your environmental, social, governance. And that is making its way to Wall Street. It's making its way to how Mm -hmm. companies are being measured. And as soon as that hits the balance sheet, your company has to be kind of following these core metrics or core values. Well, that's when the organizations are going to start paying attention to it. And we're starting to see that now. We were seeing it in the restaurant industry as I was leaving last year. And that is going to create a huge demand for folks that work in sustainability, that work in the environmental sector. It's gonna ha- have a huge demand for again this humanness, this social skill. How do you treat your people? How do you treat the communities where you do business? If you work in those three areas or you're looking for areas of study, you want to go back and maybe do some night classes or get a little certificate in a different area, I would probably double down in anything related to ESG right now is there's gonna be a huge demand for that in the workplace. So that's my two Predictions. We'll, we'll see what happens. You know, things are changing a mile a minute every day. But that, that would be my two big bets: is really doubling down on those things that AI and automation can't do for an organization, and then anything ESG related. I think is going to be pretty big news. Awesome.
0: I'll get I you back on you... the show a year
1: from now, and then we
2: can. <laughs> I know
0: you're the right. Prediction will be accurate. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think both of us can get right behind that, Laura. Yeah. Like I absolutely agree. All the evidence is pointing to those creative skills. AI will never—not in our lifetime, anyways. This
0: was a fantastic conversation, Laura. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. coming on the show. For everyone listening, please do check out on Amazon the great resonation, How coaching and appreciative leadership can help you win the war for talent. Or just look up Laura Daryl Daryl D A R. R-E-L-L. Got it? That's it. Perfect. If anyone wants to get a hold of you, Laura, what's the best way to contact you?
2: Yeah, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I try and share a lot of leadership-related stuff up there. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Shoot me an email at ldaryl at outlook.com. I'm all ears. Anybody that wants to talk leadership, that's my jam. And I think that's what I'll probably spend the bulk of the time doing in the coming years.
0: And we don't know where that will be, but it will be somewhere around the world. You're like Carmen San (laughs) Diego. Laura, again, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thanks, Laura. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Really great chatting with you both. How much do you understand the future of finance?